Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Right, here we go. Hello, I'm Dave Hendon. Welcome to another edition of the Snooker Team Podcast. Once again, joining me is Michael McMullen, and we're recording this on what would have been, well, they call it Judgment Day now. It would have been the final round of qualifying, one of the best days of the snooker year, without any question for drama and excitement. Everyone playing the Crucible. Of course, it's not happening this year, or it's certainly not happening yet. Hopefully, uh, in July, it will. Uh, but the main topic of the podcast is going to be the World Championship qualifiers, some memories and uh, stories from years gone by. Uh, before that, though, we do have some follow-up from last week. Uh, Barry Hearn actually has done another interview. He actually did it uh, in relation to the darts events he's trying to move forward, but he mentioned the World Championship. And he, he slightly wrote back on what he said before. He still says he wants to put the World Championship on, but he's admitting some of the difficulties, not least the various players around the world who... Ding Jong-Wee is one of them. Can't guarantee we'll actually be able to get back. Um, but it, the plan is, and this has pretty much been confirmed now, the plan is to start the World Championship, as I predicted, on July the 31st, which would be a Friday. Um, so we shall see uh, no more news other than that. People have sort of said, oh, it'll overlap with the Tour Championship. It won't. The dates in that Sun story weren't quite right. So anyway, that's the, the latest on that. A couple of corrections, because we, we, we are stickless for accuracy here. Uh, Tom Anderson from Eurosport, um, I'm, I rather glibly said last week I had nothing to do, and he reminds me actually he's working quite hard at the moment because Eurosport, <laughs> yeah, Eurosport are doing actually special programming. Look, look out for this during the World Championship. So they're re-editing various world finals. Well, I say re-editing, they're, they're the same results, um, but uh, they're, they're going to be rolling some of those out. And also uh, Andy Goldstein has been recording some vodcasts video podcasts with people like Ronnie O'Sullivan, various players, which are going to be shown every day during the World Championship. And Tom, I'm sure, has been in the thick of that. So he's a regular listener, but not idle, not idle. And also, I said Sam from Will Snooker, he's 25. He's 24, which is even more depressing. He's even younger than I thought. Um, right. Yeah, so that's Anyway, that's correcting that. Uh, we've had various suggestions for future topics, which we will store away. I had one today from Luke on Twitter. He said, why not pre- try and predict the futures of the current top 16, which is quite a tantalising thought. Um, I think he means a sort of immediate future rather than, you know, what, you know, what, how old they'll be when they die or something. Yeah, what will happen to them after they hang up the queue, yeah. 
Exactly. So that might be something to, to look forward to. For, uh, Florian as well got in contact. This now I like this because it's niche, and we we like niche on this podcast. He said, um, "Why not talk about the best best breaks that weren't centuries?" Of course, he's talking about. I mean, the obvious one that leaps out is Alex Higgins' his clearance in 1982. But it's been a lot. We talk about centuries a lot, quite understandably, maximums. But actually, there's been a lot of key breaks in in matches. Sometimes they're only even you know brown to black or something that actually. Yeah, I think have, it's- it's a very good point, actually, Dave, that he makes, because I, I totally agree. I, I mean, centuries, it's a very interesting thing, but I think there's a bit too much talk about it. And very often it's its the big clearances that make the difference. We spoke last week about the John Higgins one in the Masters final in 2006. Obviously, we're always hearing about Higgins one in 82. I remember O'Sullivan in the world final against Ali Carter, and it was quite an early stage of the final. But it was a break of, I think, 92. And honestly... Even with O'Sullivan, you wouldn't have given him much chance of making 20 with the balls sitting as they were when he came to the table. That was an astonishing one. So he raises a good point there. I think the century stats are very interesting and they are relevant, but I think a little too much is made of them because very often, I think, you know, a pressure clearance uh, when you know that one ball missed could make all the difference between winning and losing is actually a greater accomplishment than even a total clearance. So it's it's a good point he raises. Well, I'm, I'm sure at some point, because um, this lockdown is clearly going to continue, I'm sure we'll get onto that. A couple of uh, emails about what we talked about last week. We were talking about, this actually combines two things we were talking about. We were talking about, of course, one-time ranking event winners. And we were also talking about the sort of what's happening in snooker, the image of snooker and, and, and kind of where it lies beyond maybe just the, the professional game. And uh, Michael Day got in contact. I know Michael because I commentated with him on the women and disabilities events at the cruise last year for free sport and he said uh, a few interesting things about Bob Chapron he's actually he's the current Canadian national champion he won it last spring 38 years on from his only other triumph in the event so that's that's quite a wait to win to win that's again. gotta be a record um, that's gotta be would, a record for any event surely you would think so wouldn't you you would think so um there's a guy, Raymond Kuhlemans, who uh, oh, very yeah, player, yeah. yeah, legend from Belgium. And he has won many, many world titles. He won his first one in 1963 and he won his last one in 2001. That's <laughs> so, 38 years as well then, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but he won, a lot in bet- he won a lot in between. Anyway, we're, we're sort of going off a tangent. Um, so Michael says he's also he also won the qualifying event last autumn for the World Seniors Championship. So actually that should get him back at the crucible if that event's on. He says, I know it doesn't look good for Canadian snooker. Someone in his 60s won the national title. The year before, it had been won by Brady Gollum, another veteran. Wow. He said, oh, but he says, overall, I believe snooker is more global now than it's been in terms of structure, coverage, viewership and participation. Almost all countries in Europe now have a national snooker association. And it's positive to learn about the ambitions many of these associations have. Globally, there are nations I would never have dreamt of getting involved in snooker. 14-year-old Yulian Boyko from Ukraine reached the final of the World Snooker Federation Open, which is effectively the World Amateur Championship, in January, and very nearly became the sport's youngest ever professional. Speaking from a UK viewpoint, it's easy to be downbeat about the state of amateur snooker here. However, the English Partnership for Snooker and Billiards are taking steps to address dropping competition numbers in England. For example, a new structure in this year's Under-14 Championship saw a 300% increase in entries from 33 players the previous season to around 111 this season. So, I mean, Michael's involved in all that stuff, and it's true, work is being done. One of the problems, of course, is there's fewer places to play than there used to be. That's just a fact, there's fewer clubs. And that takes us on to another email. This is from Tim, 
I'm not sure whether it's Southern or Southern, but it, uh, Tim, either way, thank you for emailing. Um, he's a fan of the podcast. He said last week, Michael made a really good point. I, I knew that would happen eventually. Yeah, I've um, waited a long time for this. Yeah. yeah. He said, he said around the quality of pro tables versus most club tables. He says, we were lucky to have the excellent Southwest Snooker Academy near us in Gloucester, providing the chance to play on star tables recovered by World Snooker before competitions. Andy Norman on site every day for, kips, uh, for tips and coaching, all for around £10 an hour. And being there at the same time as many professionals, including Robert Milkins, Dominic Dale, Sam Baird, and many others, we were spoiled. Now it's closed and it's a huge loss. Principally because, as Michael said, club tables anywhere are mostly terrible. Thick, cheap cloths and cushions, noisy rooms with skittle alleys next door, bad heating. When compared to playing at the SWA, SWSA, it's a completely different game. Now, the tables that there are in towns I've played in, at least, are generally in political clubs, conservative clubs, British legions, working men's clubs, etc., which by their nature don't attract young people through the doors at all. If you're a youngster seeing it on TV and wanting to try it, it's hard, sometimes impossible, to find a table anywhere to play on. Brigand that's so popular on TV in this country is probably the m- most inaccessible to play. This is a huge, huge problem. Perhaps, as your listener email said last week, it's an overhang from the smoky, dingy image of snooker clubs. I think this is correct. Even though clubs aren't like that anymore, they still, they're still in the same buildings. They still look the same from the outside. Um, he says, I'd love to open a club. I work in management and have the snooker knowledge to make it work. But how do you fund it? The initial investment would be huge. How do you make regular money when the snooker tables aren't bringing the money in? The email's a bit longer as well, but I, I think we, we sort of get the gist of it there. And I mean, he's, at the moment, of course, you'd be mad to, to open a snooker club in the current climate because it's just so uncertain. But he's right. You know, it, it's it's not only a, a lack of of places to play. The, the the actual tables, by and large, you know, are not great to improve. And it's very hard to say how that's gonna gonna turn around because there's been a cultural shift. We talked about this before, haven't we? There's been a cultural yeah. shift. Fewer people. You know, a lot of people. Let's be honest now would rather play on the computer game than would actually go out to, I mean, they have to during the lockdown maybe, but a lot of young people, that's kind of the culture they're in. The culture's changed from what it was 30 years ago. Yeah, it's got to be a bit of a labour of love, I think, because I used to live in Dublin. I've lived there most of my life, and I used to play a lot at Jason's in Ranola, which was Ken Doherty's club. Now, that closed down. So then I started playing at a club on the other side of Dublin, run by uh, Finbar Ruan, who's a very good mate of Ken's, mm. actually. And he looks after the tables. There are only about six or seven of them. But he looks after the tables really, really well there. And it's because he loves the game. And it might not actually make the best financial sense for him to invest in the tables as much as he does. But because he loves the game and he wants his club to be a really proper place that people want to come and play, he does it. And, of course, he's got the issue as much as anyone of how to make it pay. Well, Finbar is in a fantastic situation because there's a big, long wall that runs along the outside of his club. And it's a real traffic hotspot in Dublin. Mm -hmm. So anyone driving from the north side of Dublin into the city centre pretty much has to drive past Finbar's club. So what he's done is... He sold advertising all along the wall on the outside of the club, and he probably makes more money out of that than he does out of the snooker itself. So if you're doing it from a pure business point of view, especially in places where property is expensive, it's very, very difficult to make it a profitable thing. There's got to be something else going on and some other angle. And even at that, as I say, it's still got to be, I think, a little bit of a labor of love as it is for Finbar. And that's why that's uh, you know one of the very few places left in Dublin that's still a really good place to go and play. Okay, I lost you very slightly there, but it may be that it's still that's still gone out as you said it. Hopefully, uh, just to reiterate, we record this via Skype. Uh, we're not the BBC. Um, anyway, we're going to move on to um, our main topic of the day, which is qualifiers. Now, all things being equal, I would, you know, if this virus hadn't, hadn't shut everything down, today I would be in Sheffield with many others 
one of the great days of the snooker year, the final qualifying round of the World Championship. It's such an amazing day. The whole qualifiers are brilliant, but it all comes to a head, of course, on what's become known as Judgment Day, where the 16 players make it through. It's become, I think, even more sort of cruel in a way in recent years since they started playing it in Sheffield. I mean, at Ponds Forge, it's got, gone back to the English, English Institute of Sport now, but at Ponds Forge, it's literally about a seven-minute walk to the Crucible. That's how close you are. It's like, you know, the, it's like the Usain Bullseye, you know, come and have a look at what you could have won. It's, it's there. It's tantalisingly waiting. But, of course, only 16 players are going to make it through. What the first thing to say about the qualifiers is the standard of snooker is completely irrelevant. And, of course, we had a few years ago the, the longest ever frame, two hours, three minutes, Fergal and, and, and Dave Gilbert. How that, the, the actual standard of snooker was is irrelevant. It's about the drama. It's, it's about just what it means. And it means everything to get to the crucible. It's the end of the season. And everyone wants to end it at the Crucible in the World Championship. It's horrible not to get not to get there. It's not about how good the snooker is. It's about the drama. It's about the tension. All the things actually we love snooker for, particularly in the longer matches, you see at the qualifiers. And of course, in recent times, they've done the the thing, uh, the YouTube spectacular that Rob Walker and, and Neil Foles do, which kind of brings it home to people. I think just just what it all means. Um, I'm gonna, here. I'm going to start with a question, okay? Because I've got the almanac and you haven't. Um, right. So I don't know whether you know this or not. I'm saying you probably do. But who has appeared at the Crucible the most times as a qualifier? Oh, I, I don't know. I don't ten, know at all. Ten, ten times is, is how many times he's played there. That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah, mm. I have heard this before, but I can't, I can't remember what the answer is. So you're going to have to tell me. The answer is Mark Davis. Ah, yes, of course. He was level until last year with Dominic Dale and John Parrott, but... Um, Obviously, he qualified last year. They, John, John doesn't play now. Dominic didn't qualify. I've, by the way, the Amanac I've got is is not the updated one because it's not out yet, so I'm going off last year's. But, yeah, so he, he's qualified uh, 10 times, although he didn't win a match there for 15 years. But um, he has also played there as a seed. But we're talking about qualifying, and I'm going to go straight to this because 1993, the World Championship, um, was a year that saw a lot of basically unknowns qualify. And one of the reasons, of course, was the qualifying was played so early. It was played, it, the, the final qualifying round of the 1993 World Championship was held on September the 24th, 1992. So it was actually closer to the previous year's World Championship. They'd had the long summer at the Norbrecht in Blackpool, all the qualifiers for the different tournaments, and they just tacked on the World Championship at the end of it. So it was just part of that block. Now, someone like Ronnie O'Sullivan, of course, who at the time was only 16, he'd won all these matches at the other tournaments. He was red hot. He may well have qualified anyway because he was so good, but he was coming off the back of that incredible run and he breezed through the field. He qualified at his first attempt. But the real interest is some of the other people who qualified. Now, one of them was Spencer Dunn. He was uh, a young man from the West Midlands. He won 11 matches to qualify. It's a record. No one's won that many. Even Ronnie that year, he won 10. Spencer Dunn had to play an extra round. So 11 matches. He was a former postman. He, he only turned pro because he got a grant from... Prince's Youth Business Trust and a few quid from his aunt to actually turn pro. I had no expectations and suddenly qualified and found himself at the Crucible. But of course, the problem was, OK, he'd been informed during those qualifiers, but there was like eight months then until the tournament. And by then, a lot of these players, and he was one of them, their form wasn't there and he, he got quite well beaten by Nigel Bond. You had hundreds of players at that time because the game had gone open a couple of years earlier who were technically professional players, but unless you were following the game very closely... Nobody had ever really heard of them. And they went through their whole careers, never playing on television, never getting to a venue. And then unbelievably in that tournament, a few of those really anonymous players 
just stepped out of the not even the supporting cast, but the understudies to the supporting cast and found themselves playing at the Crucible. The likes of Spencer Dunn, you mentioned, Sean Mellish, Carl Payne, John Giles. I mean, these were guys who never shone before or since in their entire professional lives. They all got beaten in the first round. Stephen O'Connor as well, who'd been a really good amateur. He got there for a long time in his career and got thrashed by John Paris. Although Paris didn't actually play well. There were an awful lot of very close frames. But very strange to see so many of those players coming through. And you look at all of those guys I've mentioned there. They all obviously got to the last 32 by qualifying for the Crucible. That at least equaled the best run in a ranking event for all of them in their careers. And for the likes of Mellish and Dunn, they were never that far in any other ranking event before or after. And it's strange that that should happen because obviously the best of 19 was a particularly tough challenge. It's remarkable to think that you could come through a qualifying series playing all those best of 19s. Never actually managed to do it in one where it was the standard best of nine. But they all beat good players to get there. Mellish in particular beat Ken Doherty, who then had a fantastic season, but knew all along that he was going to be finishing it, missing out on the Crucible. And John Giles, I mean, he beat Tony Knowles, who had been uh, a multiple semi-finalist not that long before that, to qualify for the Crucible. So, Yes, we can say that the schedule certainly worked in favour of those players, but they still had to beat very good players over the best of 19 to get there, and they all did it. Spencer Dunn, uh, the last three people he beat to qualify, Colin Roscoe, f- former ice cream salesman, although he didn't make a 99 that day. Um, yes. Not that I've been rehearsing that all day long. Uh, Dave Harold, who, of course, then the following year would win a ranking event, as we mentioned last last year. And then in the final round, Mark Bennett, 10-9. Mark Bennett at that time you know, was a very useful Welsh prospect um, so, you know, solid wins. Of course, uh, Sean Mellish, who you mentioned, he also qualified that year. He's in the almanac under the, under the um, topic earrings. There's a miscellaneous oh, yeah. page. And he was the first player to play at the Crucible wearing earrings, which um, apparently before that had been against the dress code and, and after that it, it wasn't. Um, Carl Payne, as well, you mentioned, he played Martin Clark. I, I remember speaking to Martin about that. He said he said Carl Payne had three haircuts during the match because he actually, it actually went into an extra session. Um, and and he had a different haircut for each uh, session. And of course, Carl Payne. Let's let's get straight to it. Best known outside snooker for going on Stars in the Rise. Yeah. He went on he went on Stars in the Rise as Rick Astley, but for some reason elected not to do the crowd pleasing. Never going to give you up. He did a sort of ballad, and well, he didn't go down particularly well. I don't think. Yeah, he, him and his tour card were certainly not together forever because yeah. he, uh, he didn't go on to build on that. He actually beat a former world champion and a uh, colleague of yours, Joe Johnson, in the mm-hmm. final qualifying round to get there. He gave Clark a good game, actually. He never really looked like he was going to win it, but he was he was in contention, that's for sure. I think of those anonymous names who got through in that extraordinary year. Uh, Sean Mellish was the one who went closest to causing an upset because he played Willie Thorne, who obviously was a top 16 player at the time. And he was right in it. He was only 7-6 down and then... Thorne pulled away to win the next uh, few frames. Stephen O'Connor, I mentioned there, he got beaten 10-1 by John Parrott, but he was actually really unlucky because almost every single frame in that match was close. But Parrott just kept on winning them. I don't think Parrott made a 50 break in the whole match. But it was uh, just that one moment in the spotlight for all of those guys, none of whom ever really amounted to anything much afterwards. And as you say, I think the format did play a big part in it. But look, all these years later, we're still talking about them. There's no way we'd be mentioning these guys now. Uh, were it not for that extraordinary season that they had, where they got to the World Championship at the start of it, played the whole season knowing they were going to the Crucible at the finish, but still in the months in between and in the years which followed, just couldn't accomplish anything to back it up with. No, one man who did amount to quite a lot was Ronnie O'Sullivan, of course, but even he, on his first year, having got there, um, didn't 
didn't win in the first round. He lost to Alan McManus, who that year would have been one of the favourites in, in D, got to the semi-finals, um, 10-7. And then a year later, Ronnie qualified again and uh, beat Dennis Taylor. And that's the last time, of course, he's had to play in the qualifying. Um, and, and, and I guess that's the thing. Once you get in that top 16, you can sort of look over your shoulder at all these other people scrapping it out. The qualifying by nature, though, I mean, I know Joe Perry has said this and other, other people have said it. There are players who actually, some players are good at qualifying, but you don't think they're going to do particularly well at the tournament. But they're actually players who, you know, are good at making it through. In recent years, Robbie Williams had a very good record at qualifying for some reason. And then at the Crucible, just, just couldn't get through that first round. I guess it's a different thing, isn't it? It's, it's just a different mentality because, like I said at the start, it's not about playing well. It's about actually just winning. That's all that's important. Yeah, and, you know, for a lot of these guys, any player, their ambition is to win the World Championship or to win any tournament. But a lot of them know that deep down, they're probably never going to be good enough to do that. Or at least if they are, it's going to take them a long time to get there. So for young players in the early stages of their career, if you ask them what their ambition is in the short term, they say, well, first, it's to keep their card and stay on the tour. But beyond that, it's to play at the Crucible because that's every player's dream. That's where they imagine themselves playing, where they fantasize about themselves playing. And if they can do that, then it's a massive moment for them. You think of Michael Georgiou last year getting mm-hmm. there for the first time and how emotional he was after the win over Yan Bing Tao, which was a great result because Yan would certainly been the favourite to beat him. And he talked about how much it meant to him. He didn't hide his emotions at all. Then he went to the Crucible a few days later and got a massive wake-up call, 9-0 down against Neil Robertson. And I think everyone was pleased when he did actually manage to win that next frame. It was a really good effort, actually, uh, pulled out a 90 break. Because it would have been terrible for him to go there, all that excitement about his debut, and go and get beaten by 10 frames to nil. Now, Lu Hong Hao was beaten 10 nil, but you kind of feel he'll almost certainly be back there a number of times. Michael Georgiou may well be. Very good chance he wouldn't, though. So it was it was good that he managed to avoid the whitewash uh, when he went there for his debut last year. I've seen firsthand many times what it means to players, but there's one particular year, and this is actually 20 years ago now, the last match on was Gary Wilkinson against Jason Ferguson. Now, very sensibly, the final session started at six o'clock. They thought, oh, we'll get it all done and dust it, you know, by half ten, everyone will, you know, all the players safely through. Uh, not a bit of it. They they were still going at 22. Um, I think it, it may still be the longest ever best of 19. But I thought, and I was young at the time, believe it or not, and I thought, rather than sloping off and ringing up the venue to find out who's won, because I was at the venue, I thought, I'm going to stay to the end. I'm going to do the professional thing. I'm going to stay to the end. And I'm going to get the quotes from the winner. So the latest finish, you know, the qualifiers, I'm going to be the man who gets the quotes. So so I hung around and hung around, and it went on forever. The last frame was must have been 90-odd 90, 90 minutes. Uh, Gary Wilkinson won 10-9. So I thought, right, I'm going to get, you know, the exclusive. I'm going to get the scoop from Gary. Said, so, oh Gary, um, you know, well done. Uh, how does it feel? He said, and he he said, uh, well, it, it, I said, you know, it took a long time, Gary. How does how it feel? He said, well, doesn't matter how you get there, and that was it. He was gone. So I waited and waited until nearly nearly two in the morning, and that was it. It don't, doesn't matter how you get there. Um, I, I learned over the years not not to be so professional. Um, but that, you know, again, it was horrible snooker, I suppose, objectively. But that's not the point. The point is getting through, and and you see. It does favour, I think, and the longer matches in general, favour these solid old match players, the people who know what they're doing. Because you've got to, it's not just about actually, you know, breaks. It's about almost sort of dismantling your opponent's resolve. Yeah, and he went to the Crucible, actually, uh, Wilkinson, and uh, almost pulled off a big upset, actually, in the first round, didn't he? Because he played John Parrott when he, uh, who was still one of the very top players. 
and took them to a decider before going out. And if we're going to mention that 2000 qualifying competition, we have to mention another match in that final round involving Joe Swale. Mm. playing Stephen Maguire, who was very new to the circuit at the time. And Maguire was trying to qualify for the Crucible for the first time. Swale had been there before, of course. Maguire's 9-6 up. He's got a pink to win the match, get to the Crucible for the first time, just to get over the line at 10-6, misses it. And, of course, you give Joe Swale a chance to get back into the match and he will jump all over it. Comes back, wins at 10-9, goes to the Crucible after that miraculous recovery, having been one ball away from going out. Gets to the semi-finals. That gets him back in the top 16. He builds on it by going on then to reach the uh, semi-finals again the following year. And you have to wonder how different Joe Swale's career might have been if Stephen Maguire hadn't missed that pink 20 years ago. So it's just the smallest little things, actually, in the qualifiers can make the biggest difference. And we saw it again five years later, another match, uh, again involving Swale, actually, in the final qualifying round against Sean Murphy. Really high-quality match, actually. And Murphy's leading 9-8. Swale is in. He's on a break of 50-odd. Looks like he's going to take it to a decider, and he probably would have been favourite to win that. Just finished slightly awkward queuing. I think it was on the brown. Missed the brown. Murphy ends up clearing with 67 to win on the black. He averts the decider, gets to the crucible. A few weeks later, he's world champion. And you might say a player of Murphy's talent and dedication would have become a top player at some point anyway, because he certainly wasn't at that stage. And maybe he would have done, but perhaps not. And you can certainly say maybe he would never have won the world championship. And it could all have been very different. Swale had just finished slightly different on that brown. So just these small little things that happen in qualifying matches might not make much of an impact uh, on the wider world and get much coverage, but they can massively impact a player's career in this future. That's definitely true. And, and Maguire still talks about that pink. When people ask him, you know, what's the biggest disappointment? He will tell you, missing that pink to, to win that qualifier. Um, because, you know, I think he, he felt he could have done... He could have done some real damage at uh, the Crucible. I mean, even Stephen Hendry and these people are about to qualify. And going back to Hendry's first year, so 1986, he qualified, of course, famously played Willie Thorne. But what people didn't see were four very, very tough matches he had. He beat Bert DeMarco, 10-7, Paddy Brown, 10-9, Wayne Jones, 10-8, and Dean O'Kane, 10-9. So, you know, even he didn't have it easy. And, and I'm sure those matches were not particularly sort of attracted to watch. But again, it's about scrapping through. I've got another question, actually, uh, to see if you can um, make up for your earlier um, sure, misses. Yeah, now, this hasn't been... This may not be right because it's it's from last year. So I, I don't know that this is right now, but it was right as of last year, if that makes right. any sense. So most appearances in the final qualifying round without reaching the Crucible. Oh, so this, this player, nine times he's played in the final round. I don't think he was there last year. Um... But didn't, but hasn't qualified. He's lost every time. Well, no, he's qualified. He's played at the Crucible a number of times, but he's actually lost oh, nine I times. Oh, see, right. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Give me, give me a clue. Give me a clue. Um, you know him pretty well. <laughs> All right. Oh, is it Fergal? Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. he was involved in that match, of course, against Dave Gilbert. You mentioned yeah. um, three years ago now, I think it was. I, I mean, I watched every minute of that deciding frame. It was one of the most memorable and enjoyable frames of snooker I've ever watched. And nobody would remember that frame at all, um, except the players involved, I guess. If someone had won it with a century, we're only talking about it now. and We mm. will be talking about it for years to come because of the nature of it. But I think the yellow was the key ball, wasn't it? And they were on that for about half an hour. And every shot, you felt this could be the decisive moment of the match. And you knew how much it meant to Fergal, of course, because I think he was 45 by that. And deep down, he probably knew that realistically, this might be his chance to get back to the Crucible one last time. 
So he managed to get through. Dave said some things after the match that, you know, suggested he hadn't taken it particularly well. But in the circumstances, I think that was understandable. Of course, a few days later, Fergal is at the Crucible, playing the defending champion Mark Selby in the first round and just had nothing left to give because he had absolutely worn himself out in that. Well, that's what they all say. Whenever whenever um, you speak to them when they're qualified, they're all happy, of course. But they always say, I don't want to plan Saturday because now it's so well. If it was on, there'd be like three days until um, until the, the tournament started. And, the, and it, it's like you've climbed a mountain, then you've got to start climbing another one. But of course, it can be an advantage playing in the qualifiers. Ding Junhui, uh, four years ago, dropped out of the top 16, had to go and qualify. Now, Ding at times has played as a seed, as seeded players often do in that first round under pressure. But actually, he came through Bruce for the qualifying and got all the way to the final. Only time he's been in the world final. Because he went to the Crucible, not only with matches under his belt, but suddenly he wasn't under the pressure that the CD players are under. Yeah, and I think also, uh, the way the first round schedule fell, the time between him playing his qualifier and playing his first round match was actually about a week. And also, Ding, I think he still does, certainly at that time, he was living in the Sheffield area, so he was able to go home and sleep in his own bed between matches. And I think most of his qualifiers he got through pretty easily. So it wasn't taking as much out of him. And absolutely, the point you raise about the fact that he got matches under his belt, which he hadn't had that many of that season because he'd been struggling, that really stood for him. But he was playing that world championship. And that's what it's become now. We've got 17 days. But you have to qualify. Then you have to draw on the Thursday the media day on the Friday, and it all starts on the Saturday. And the fact that it's all played now, as I said, in one city, it's basically become a single event now that goes on for almost a month. And I know the format's changed a bit now, but the last few years you've had players involved in the first qualifying round who could conceivably win the championship, or at least in Ding's case, get to the final. And that's made it feel like one mammoth event now uh, that you have over that period of a month in Sheffield. But yeah, definitely stood to him that year in, in 2016. And, you know, the other thing as well is, you, you know, there are some players who found it really, really hard to get through. Like Ben Wollaston, for example, off the top of your head, how many times would you think he's been at the Crucible? I, d- I don't think he's ever played there, has he? He, uh, he got there once. He played Andy Carter in the first round okay. seven years ago. But you think, you know, he's been a ranking event finalist. He's been mm-hmm. around a long time. Very capable player. Really surprising to think. He's only been to the Crucible on one occasion. And then you've got the other end, uh, the other extreme. You've got a player like Patrick Wallace, who went there one time and made the absolute most of it. Blew away his first two opponents. Alan McManus, 10-2. Mark King, 13-5. Then he played his really good friend, Joe Swell, in the quarterfinal. And actually led 6-2 after the first session. And then Joe came back at him. It was 11-all. And then Joe won the last couple of frames. But what a performance that was to get to the quarterfinals on his Crucible debut. He was never in the quarterfinals of anything else before or after. And in fact, after that remarkable run in 2001 on his debut, he never managed to get back there again. He was in the final qualifying round another couple of times, but didn't get through. And he's now gone back to being an amateur player. He's been the leading player, really, since he uh, came back onto the Northern Ireland amateur scene and almost won the World Seniors a few years ago. But he'll always be remembered for that uh, one opportunity Crucible and why did he take it so well back in 2001 I saw him uh, in Belfast at the Northern Ireland Open yeah he's keeping well Patrick which is uh, good to see as you say still playing uh, in the seniors um, some players you know we talk about a specialist at qualifying some players it seems are the opposite and you think about a Crucible legend Mark Williams three times champion but he actually initially never qualified he, the first time he played first time he played there in 97 he was seeded now of course subsequent to that 
when he dropped out at 16, he did qualify. But in his early years, for whatever reason, never quite made it through. But of course, uh, the good news is once he's played at the Crucible, he, he got the measure of the place. Yeah, I think Martin Clark was the same, wasn't he? He yeah. uh, rose the rank, rose up the rankings pretty quickly, but still took him whatever it was, probably about three years, I think it was, to get into the top 16. But he didn't get through world qualifying in any of those years. So I think his first appearance there was as a seeded player. Yeah, and we mentioned last week as well Chris Small in our one-time ranking event uh, winners. Of course, he in '92 won eight matches, um, and he was kind of a complete unknown. I mean, the, the, so were the Spencer Duns and, and the Sean Mellishes. But again, someone who, for whatever reason, just sort of cut a sway through, got a bit of m- momentum behind him, cut a sway through the qualifiers, and he got to the Crucible. I can't remember when the qualifiers were played that year, but he got to the Crucible and beat Doug Manjoy, who, of course, had had the resurgence in, in, in recent times. Um, and then lost narrowly to Dino Kane. So he actually was one who, who who made good on it once he got there. Yeah, I think the qualifiers that year were played in stages because there were hundreds of professionals at that time. They started off with a few rounds basically in snooker clubs around England, and then there was maybe another phase and then a final qualifying phase, which I think was played quite close to the championship. So, yeah, that was that was quite an effort as well. I've got a question for you now, and it, it's it's you said we you said we love niche on this podcast. This is, <laughs> it's extremely niche, but the answer is interesting, and I'm fairly sure this is the answer to it. Who was the first player to play at the Crucible from a European country other than Britain or Ireland? Well, um, I well Europeans are multi counts. I'm, I'm guessing. Yes, you're getting close. So, was it Paul Mifsud? It was Paul Mifsud, yeah. You might think it was Drago, but yeah. Paul Mifsud is well-known as an amateur player. He won the World Amateur Championship twice, but before that, he had actually had a very brief professional career. And the only time he made any impact on any tournament was actually the World Championship. He qualified for it in 84, played Terry Griffiths in the first round, and as you might expect, uh, he was beaten quite heavily. But he was a, a classic case, I think, of a player who was just too good for everyone else in the amateur game but not quite good enough, perhaps, for the pro game. So he was, he was a very obscure qualifier. Then in the mid-90s, I mean, we talked about all those guys in 93. Uh, there was Paul Cavney as well in 95. He actually uh, beat Neil Folds in the final qualifying round in a decider to get to the Crucible and was then heavily beaten by Drago, who we just mentioned there. Gary Ponting as well. The only time he ever qualified for the Crucible was in 94, although he, he did some decent results in other tournaments, but it was still, you know, a very rare moment in the spotlight for him. Uh, so they're, they're some of the surprise players. And, and then, again, one of the most surprising of all was uh, Surinder Gill, who qualified mm. in 94, got to the Crucible, the only time he was ever in the last 32 of a ranking event in his career, and, of course, played Stephen Henry on the opening day and got absolutely blitzed. Henry, I know, almost had a maximum. He missed the yellow. Got beaten by 10 frames to one, but I don't remember hearing Surrender Gill's name probably before that and, and certainly not after it, uh, doing anything in any professional tournament. So they, they, they there was a real phase of those uh, uh, really surprising players getting through. And one other I'll mention as well from slightly later, Graham Horn. Do you remember him? Yeah. He, uh, yeah, he turned pro when, when the game went open in 91, but took years to make an impact. Finally started to make a bit of a breakthrough. Qualified for Thailand. He played James Wattonner actually in the Thailand Open. You can imagine what an occasion that was. Then the end of that season, qualified for the Crucible for the first time. Drew John Higgins was actually 3-1 up against him. And still only 5-4 down going into the last session. But Higgins blitzed him then in the final session and came through 10-6. Normally, of course, you get to the Crucible for the first time. You think, OK, I've really got something to build on now. But for Graham, it was a different story because he was actually relegated off the tour after that match. 
because his results over the previous couple of seasons hadn't been good enough. He did get back on the tour later. But there's so many of these players who never really did anything much in any other tournaments, but somehow managed to, to pull it together for the Crucible. And those guys are among the prime examples. Yeah, one of the problems they had, though, and we're talking about sort of early to mid-90s, um, before the red button and before internet coverage and, and before Eurosport as well, covering the World Championship, they would say, to, I'm sure, to their friends and family, you know, I'm playing at the Crucible and a lot of people would go with them. But a lot of people would say, OK, well, so when can I see on TV? And of course, a lot of these matches would not have been shown. There's yeah. a good chat. I don't know how much of Spencer Dunn's match with Nigel Bond was shown, but it wouldn't. I'm guessing it would not have been much. Might not have been any of it. Um, and I know some of these players, um, they would go to the BBC afterwards and say, you know, can we get the tape? And usually, you know, BBC quite, um, you know, would, would do that. But it's not quite the same as it being transmitted. It's, you know, you've climbed that mountain, 11 matches to get to the Crucible, but then you're at the mercy of basically the BBC schedules. In, in those days, people have a sort of rose-tinted view of what it was like. Some days they didn't show much at all. Particularly around that time, actually, the early 90s, they had started to, you know, the BBC's perception of snooker had started to wane a little bit. Uh, so I guess the way around that is to try and win your first round match. Mm. Uh, because then I think if you're in the second round, you're going to get decent exposure. And uh, Nick Walker, of course, uh, a player who, again, was, was not a big star at all, got to a couple of last 16s in other events. But, but that was it, really. He made it to the Crucible, beat Elaine Robidoux in the first round. And of course... You know, Elaine had had all his problems with his, with his cue and everything, so a slightly favourable draw. And then played Mark Williams in the second round, who had really become one of the top players by then, and gave him a really good battle. It was 9-7 going into the last session, and then Williams pulled away. So that's the thing, I suppose, if you really want to guarantee yourself a moment in the real spotlight, you've got to win your first round match. And a lot of these first-time qualifiers don't manage to do that, or certainly a lot of the players who only get there once uh, tend to go out quite tamely. But uh, Nick Walker took, took advantage of his moment in the spotlight and played uh, one of the all-time greats, as he turned out to be, in the last 16 and certainly had uh, had his moment in the sun. And what about, sort of, as we begin to wrap up, the actual qualifying uh, system? Because, of course, it's changed a little bit over the years. It used to be that the 17 to 32 ranked players were kept back until the last round. And they used to, if it was played in one block, they would complain that, you know, we're bang under it because we're coming in without having, having had a match and all these other players um, are match fit. So then they started holding it over to sort of random times. Then when Barry Hearn came in, he moved, changed it again and everyone outside the top 16 came in in the first round with some invited amateur players. It's changed back again. Obviously, they haven't played it yet, but if it does happen this year, it's slightly tiered again. So some players will play four matches, some players will play two. I actually quite liked how it went from you know last year and the last few years where, okay, the disparity of opponents in the first round was quite strong. You could play, you know, some, some amateur who obviously was not going to be up to it over 19 frames, or you could play someone really good. But it, it felt like a sort of tournament within a tournament, I think. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I can see the merits of either way. And I was a bit sceptical when they introduced that system, but I, I do agree with you. I think it did uh, produce some really interesting qualifying competitions and certainly worked in favour of a number of players. I mean, Ding Junhui getting all those matches under his belt. I think Alan McManus as well benefited from mm. the year that he went on that amazing run to the semi-finals. The fact that he had played himself in in so many best of 19s in the qualifiers. Formats changed again, as you say. Uh, we'll see how that works. I know there are some players who feel if you're that close, to qualifying automatically, you should get some advantage in the qualifying competition. But everyone knows at the start what the rule is. You've got to be in the top 16 to avoid the qualifying competition. And if you really are a top player who's going to contend for the World Championship, then you've got the ability to do that. And if you don't, 
then you've got to go and take your chances in those qualifying rounds. The, the, just a couple of other players I'd like to mention from mm. non-traditional snooker nations. The 1987 World Championship. I won't even ask you this question because it's so obscure. The first century break of the 87 World Championship, and that obviously includes the qualifying rounds, was actually made by an American player, Jim Rippey. <laughs> He was a top four player. But uh, yeah, he, I remember him making the first century of it. And he got through a couple of rounds, remarkably, because he wasn't a regular snooker player at all. He actually played Stephen Hendry in the qualifying and took a few frames off him. So that was a good story. And someone else as well, we have to mention. Who would ever have thought we'd see a player from Iceland get into the Crucible? And that was 20 years ago. Christian Helgeson came through a decider against Terry Murphy. Uh, to make it to Sheffield, huge thing for him. I think he was as surprised as anyone, then got heavily beaten by by Stephen Lee in the opening round. I remember at the time, it was a very curious stat. He was described as the first player from mainland Europe to qualify for the Crucible. <laughs> I remember thinking three things. Well, first of all, by what stretch of the imagination is Iceland part of mainland Europe? And mm. if you mean um, the part of Europe that isn't Britain and Ireland, as we were talking about earlier, well, he wasn't even the first from there because, of course, we had, as we discussed, Paul Mipsud and, and Tony Drago. So I think it was probably the worst stat ever because it was wildly inaccurate in two ways. But again, all these guys, you know, they drifted back probably into normal life after their moment in the spotlight. But what a story to tell that they got to play the most famous snooker venue in the world. I'll say two things about Christian Elgerson. The first is he was a very enigmatic character, um, a man of few words. He could speak English, but just didn't seem to want to. And when he qualified, you know, we used to play as well when they qualify, basically bouncing off the walls with excitement. He was the opposite. And I remember Bruce Becker, who was, you remember, the World Snooker Media yeah. guy, guy at the time, who was a very gregarious character. You know, he, he could get people talking and get them to open up. He got five words out of Christian Helgeson when he qualified. And as I say, he could speak, he could speak English, but he just was not interested in engaging at all. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is, and it's tied into the first thing, because he was so enigmatic, um, the BBC, only like they'd never seen him before. So they, they came up with a feature to sort of give facts about Christian Elgerson. And this involved a friend of ours, Phil Yates. Um, appear, I don't know if you even remember this, but he appeared essentially in a parody of the scene from All the President's Men when Bob Woodward, the, the uh, journalist character, goes into an underground garage to meet Deep Throat, the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the source yeah, who's going to yeah. give him this information. So Phil, who's not an actor, I think it's worth saying, um, but gave it of his best. He dressed up effectively in a, in a sort of coat and hat. And the idea was that, you know, the sort of car lights will come on and he would give a fact about Christian Elgerson. As bad as that sounds, the actual filming of it was even worse because... There was essentially, and uh, you know, not no offence meant by this, but there was essentially a tramp down there as well, and you know he was not involved in the television production, and he had a few drinks and was sort of shouting stuff out from the sidelines. So it was uh, it was a quite fraught production, but needless to say, it made it on air because <laughs> there were so many hours to fill. How bad it was, it made it on air, and Phil got his little uh, his little moment. He got, he got, he got his, he got his moment. I, I can't believe you thought there was any possibility. I wouldn't have remembered that. I, I certainly <laughs> remember it very well. I'll tell you another thing as well. I'm, I'm glad I wasn't at those qualifiers working in 2000 because it sounds like it was tough going. Uh, Bruce only got a few words out of Christian Helgeson, and you, you couldn't even get more than a few words out of one of the politest men on the circuit, Gary Wilkinson. So sounds like it was, uh, it was a tough, uh, tough pound to earn at the, uh, at the qualifiers that year. Millennial tension, I put it down yeah. to. Um, okay, well, that's uh, that's kind of the flavour. Now, we always welcome feedback. So if you've got any stories about qualifiers, I know a lot of snooker fans love going to the qualifiers to watch and we'll have their own uh, tales to tell, I'm sure, and maybe some of the officials as well. So you can contact us on any matters uh, at our email address, which is snooker 
snookerscenepodcast at mail.com, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Now, here's another idea as well I'd like to hear from our listeners about. The BBC are showing classic matches every day of what would have been the World Championship. Now, this is actually a repeat of a series that was on four years ago, but it was shown, I think most of them were shown in the middle of the night. So they were, yeah, I mean, they're on YouTube, but I think a lot of people may not have seen them. They're well, very well put together. Hazel, Hazel Urban presents them. And they're, they're the matches you would expect, though. They're the 85 final, 92, 94, matches that we kind of, even if you weren't born, you know about. What I'm interested in, if you could um, watch World Championship matches again, what matches would you pick? I'm thinking about more obscure matches, so maybe first-round matches. I mean, one that stuck out for me, I remember John Higgins and Mark Selby played in a, in a quarter-final that went the distance. Um, oh, yeah, that was brilliant, 2009, just, yeah. Yeah, just an unbelievable match. That's the sort of match that you, you might want to see again, or maybe a match that you're at. It might feature obscure players. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, you know, John Virgo, Gary Wilkinson, I, I saw at the Crucible. Um, I don't want to watch that one again, by the way. But um, but matches like that, so matches that are not going to feature in this series, but mean something to you, um, maybe with high quality, or just or just matches that you know you think actually deserve to be wheeled out again, rather than nothing against this classic matches series. But we know you could write down the list of what the matches are going to be because obviously they've chosen you know high profile matches, finals, and so on. Let's dig a little deeper because we are more of a niche crowd, I think on this podcast and also any other ideas you have for um, future topics do let us know uh, snooker scene podcast at mail.com I'll read it one more time snooker scene podcast at mail.com is the address to get hold of us we had a lot of uh, nice emails from people thank you for uh, getting in contact I have the feeling this the audio on this edition may not be the best but um, uh, you know what can we do all, all the do. better for that really and well there's some, there's some bits you wouldn't want to hear i guess so <laughs> definitely not i mean just thinking about some of the matches that i've because i've seen the list of matches they have and mm. that and i remember them all from a few years ago anyway but just a couple that spring to mind less obvious ones the quarter final between joe johnson and stephen hendry in 1987 yeah. that that was fantastic there is a brief clip of that just a few minutes of it on youtube but i'd love to see that one again and well, one match i just remember was was absolutely brilliant 20 years ago this year David Gray against mm. Ronnie O'Sullivan in the first round. Ronnie made five centuries. He also made a 96, and he got beaten. And that was actually one of the first years that Eurosport were showing the championship. And BBC never came on live in the mornings at that time. But I remember watching that whole final session on Eurosport on a Monday morning because I didn't travel over till later in the week uh, when we got to the second round. And I just thought it was just one of the most enjoyable snooker matches ever. And, of course, a few days later, after pulling off that amazing upset, Gray then lost, I think, 13-1, wasn't it, to Dominic Dale? So, uh, so many matches to choose from. I, I was pleased to see, actually, they've included the Sean Murphy-Matthew Stevens match from 2007, because that is slightly less obvious, but a really wonderful and memorable match as well. Well, you mentioned Joe Johnson, of course, the year before, um, just before we wrap up in the quarterfinal, against oh, yeah. Terry Griffiths. He was 12-9 down and won 13-12, and he won he had a couple of centuries. He won the four frames in something like 52 minutes, and that four-frame burst... Is probably the best four frames anyone has put together at the Crucible, given the context of being three down with four to play and what it meant, what it meant to Joe, obviously, as an unknown to get to the semi-finals on home soil in Yorkshire. I'm saying that's the best four frames consecutively anyone has put together at the Crucible. And that was a fantastic match. And of course, after that match, um, Joe will tell you this himself. Terry Griffiths took him into the toilet and said, said to him, Joe, I think you're going to win this tournament. And whatever you do, if you do win it, take yourself, tell, take yourself on holiday the next day because the press will be crawling around you. And of course, Joe, in his kind of naivety, because he'd never experienced this before, didn't do that. And needless to say, woke up the next morning and the press were literally climbing up his drain pipe to try and take pictures of him. So uh, anyway, that, 
He had to do it actually at the end of the season because I did a piece with Joe in 2016 for the programme of the World Championship because it was 30 years on. I remember him, he told exactly that story again. I'd heard it before, but he told it again because it did have a big impact on him. And he actually ended up having to take a holiday immediately before the next year's championship because the whole year as champion had got to him so much. And he actually went away on his own and practised uh, in a place where nobody could find him for several days leading up to the championship. And as we know, he almost went and won it again. Absolutely. Well, let us know whatever matches uh, that sort of strike those, those sort of memories for you. And just one very final thing. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, which I know a lot of people do, you subscribe on there. If you could, if you enjoy the podcast, then leave us a review because it's a way that other people can find the podcast. If they see like a five-star review or whatever, people find it that way. I had a, a message from someone just recently saying, oh, I've just discovered your podcast. I really enjoy it. We've been going like five years. So it just shows you because there's so many podcasts and so many things going on in the, in the, in the, on the interweb. Um, it's quite hard for people to find things, but that's one way uh, of drawing attention to us. So that's it. We will be back next week. Let us know your thoughts on this episode, assuming, of course, you've been able to uh, hear any of it. Michael, I'll speak to you next week. Cheers, Dave. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.